Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I think that the WTO it has reached a fork in the road. I think it's on its knees. The WTO has got to be picked up and put back on its feet, and this is a job for a practice politician. Hi, and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard the voice of Peter Mandelson, the former EU trade commissioner and British cabinet minister. In this week's episode, he throws his hat into the ring to become the next boss of the World Trade Organization and makes his pitch for why he should get the chance to pull the WTO out of crisis. Long shot candidate, you can be the judge. He also talks about tensions with China and the path he sees to a deal between the EU and the UK. But first, let's bring together Brussels, Paris and Berlin in our pan-European podcast panel with Matt Karnichnik in Germany and Reem Montaz in France. Uh, hi Reem. Bonjour. Hi Matt. Good morning. Okay, we're going to get right to it. We're doing that uh, slightly dangerous uh, high-wire uh, journalistic act of talking about something before it's actually happened. But I think we're going to be okay if we uh, talk about the um, virtual EU summit, the video conference among EU leaders. Uh, we're recording on Thursday. It's taking place on Friday. So some of you will be listening to this after it's happened. We feel reasonably sure because nobody is uh, predicting or even expecting or planning for an agreement here. Obviously, the central subject is the recovery fund and the EU budget, which are kind of tied together in one big recovery package, if you like. Reem, so where do, I guess, where do you think we stand overall in terms of reaching an agreement? And, and where do, in your conversations with French officials, where do they think the conversation is and what are the important points for them? So, you know, French officials, interestingly, are continuing to be reasonably uh, and cautiously optimistic. They don't think, obviously, that uh, Friday's summit is going to be a conclusive summit. I think from the get-go, they've been saying this for over a month now. They clearly think that there is a need for an in-person summit that should happen in July. For them, it's super important that this uh, is agreed on and, and that a, you know, an agreement is reached before the end of the summer. Very important for them. And the most central thing for them uh, is to have, obviously, uh, a, a very big chunk of grants in terms of the recovery plan. This is really something they are not going to compromise or not willing to compromise for them. They even say that they want 
at least 500 billion euros in grants, which is, you know, the the number that was put forth by the Franco-German initiative. Then there's all sorts of other parameters that, you know, they're willing to sort of discuss in connection with the EU budget. They realize that Obviously, you know, countries that aren't necessarily very big on grants um, are worried about, uh, you know, fiscal uh, discipline will want to get at least some kind of trade off. Uh, so, you know, they're open to discussing rebates, which, as you know, historically they are against, um, but they're willing to sort of entertain them in the greater sort of context of getting uh, an agreement that includes a very big, uh, you know, chunk of grants with a recovery plan. They're obviously looking at own resources. So so there's a lot to sort of play around with, but these are the contours of the French position. Right, the own resources being the kind of additional sources of revenue that you might bring in to the budget over time, which would be used then, according to the Commission anyway, to repay the debt that's going to be taken out as part of this uh, plan. Like a carbon tax or, or a tech tax. Right, carbon tax, plastic tax, uh, tech tax, there's various, or this uh, mysterious uh, big company single market tax, which they kind of magicked up out of nowhere uh, with a with a number attached, which they've been unable to explain how they arrived at it. So I guess the question partly, Matt, is uh, you also keep in touch with the Frugals. Um, you know, Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz is one of those and talked to you a few weeks ago when the proposal came out. Do you think they can be bought off with some rebates? Um, and do you think... Uh, you know, that they are edging towards accepting the kind of overall package that's on the table? Well, ultimately, I think anybody can be bought off if the price is right, of course. (laughs) Um, Okay, good to know. (laughs) You know, I think that their strategy appears to be to play for time here and to draw this out as long as possible. As as Reem said, you know, there's this this goal of the summer. The Germans have been saying the same thing. It's not clear to me whether they're talking about the meteorological summer or the astronomical uh, summer. Yeah, Um, that can be a movable feast. You know, it could be a while before we have a, you know, tangible deal here that that everybody will will uh, go home and defend and i think until then you're just, just going to have a lot of back and forth uh, i think another thing that people are going to be looking at is the trajectory of the pandemic over the summer and if things really do improve or continue to improve as as they have done or if these fears of a second wave you know as many people are predicting in the fall continue to rise. So I I think there are some sort of external factors there that will play into these negotiations as well. Yeah, I think the other thing I heard uh, Angela Merkel also mention the the kind of summer deadline. And of course, does that mean that August is no longer kind of sacrosanct in uh, Brussels in terms of of holidays? Could we end up with, you know, physical uh, sort of summits in the middle of August to to get this done? And I I think that one of the reasons people are pushing for that, obviously, there's just people who want to get the deal done. But as we've mentioned before, there are a bunch of other hoops that are going to have to be jumped through after they reach the deal, including uh, national parties parliaments around the EU uh, signing off on the deal and in particular the the mechanism they've come up with to to raise the money which basically involves parliaments agreeing to raise the ceiling the amount of money that in theory the EU can call upon as a contribution to the budget which allows them then to go to the markets and and raise this this money and i, I would i would just add to that that another factor i think that people are going to have to consider here is the the economic fallout as as we've said before we're we're really still relatively at the beginning of this in terms of the economic impact and 
by August, September, I think a lot of people in Europe are going to be feeling a lot more pain than they than they are now. And that translates into political pressure as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's switch to another topic uh, briefly. Uh, we're recording, as I said, on Thursday. And Emmanuel Macron is, is uh, taking a trip uh, going to the UK. Uh, Reem, maybe you can explain briefly the historical context. Yeah, so quickly, you know, today is uh, today being Thursday is June 18th. It's the day that uh, Charles de Gaulle uh, gave his very famous uh, sort of radio speech, which was a, which was a call uh, to French resistance fighters to sort of come together and really start uh, really the sort of the big push for resistance against obviously the Nazis during World War II. And it was kind of the beginning of, of a very big, important turning point. And as every Everyone knows who listens to us, you know, Charles de Gaulle is, is the foundational figure of um, what we call the Fifth Republic in, in France. So, you know, the, the, the current sort of regime we are under. Macron has always drawn a direct line from de Gaulle to himself. He's constantly referring to him. The only picture frame on Macron's presidential desk at the Elysee is one of uh, Charles de Gaulle. So extremely important figure, obviously. So he's going to London and he is going to give uh, the city of London the Legion of Honor, which is really the highest honor that can be bestowed by France. And that has only been given to two other cities uh, in recent times. And so he's going to do that. He's going to be meeting with uh, Prince Charles and then he's going to have a bilateral meeting with Boris Johnson, which obviously is sort of the political side of this of this day. Uh, and there's no question they will be discussing you know, bilateral issues. What we're told by the Elysee is that, as always, as has been the case for the past year, uh, there will be no bilateral negotiations when it comes to Brexit, that there is only one negotiator on behalf of the EU, and that is Barnier, and he speaks for the 27, and he is the one who handles the, bi the, the Brexit negotiations. And happily, he's also French. So well, you, that's you just a nice coincidence, Andrew. Uh, you can't begrudge them that. Uh, but, no, not at all. <laughs> but I'm always, you know, struck by, uh, yes, how sometimes some members of sort of the British press sort of misread and think that there could be some sort of deal that can be struck between Boris Johnson and Macron. Uh, but, you know, French officials have continued to say that is simply not the case, just as he didn't strike a bilateral deal with Johnson when it came to the withdrawal agreement he is not going to do it now on fisheries or anything else. Okay, well, uh, we'll keep that bit if he doesn't. <laughs> and, uh, and, if, and if by some uh, miracle he changes his policy, then that's the great thing with regarding in advance. We'll update. Um, Matt, I think you and I have been talking a bit this week about, uh, so we're switching topics again here, um, and we're going to kind of the other end of Europe, if you like, and that's uh, the Balkans and in particular Kosovo. The news this week was that uh, Rick Grinnell, the former uh, US ambassador to Germany, who also serves as Donald Trump's special envoy for the uh, Kosovo-Serbia peace talks, has announced that uh, leaders from both uh, Kosovo and Serbia will uh, come to the White House on June the 27th, I think, for talks which he was stressing are about economics, but are obviously part of this overall attempt to you know, reach a final peace settlement uh, more than 20 years after the end of the Kosovo War, uh, about 12 years after Kosovo um, declared independence from Serbia. But of course, that declaration hasn't been recognised by Serbia itself or by Serbia's allies, uh, most notably Russia. So Kosovo is effectively blocked from joining 
uh, a lot of international organisations. So um, the interesting thing here is partly the the US involvement. You know, what do you make of it, Matt? And maybe also why should uh, why should our listeners care? Because I know that you know for some particularly younger listeners, perhaps you know they're not so familiar with the Balkans and they just wonder, you know, why it's a big deal, why we should be interested. Well, I guess from a macro level, the the reason is that you know pretty much every major war in Europe over the last couple of hundred years started in the Balkans or has had some connection to the Balkans. So it's worth you know considering what's going on down there, and and these countries are expected to join the EU at some stage and on the the on on Europe's uh, doorstep. And well, there was an armed conflict in uh, Kosovo not too long ago, I think, in, in probably most uh, listeners' lives. So it, it is an, an issue that affects Europe more directly than the United States, to, to be honest. And I, I think this is sort of one of the interesting aspects here is that this is not a conflict that is really on the radar of many people in the United States. I think from a kind of geopolitical standpoint, it's, it's relevant to the U.S. because of Russia's influence in the region. And Russia has traditionally a strong relationship with Serbia. Um, so it, it is kind of an, an area where a lot, a lot of people ha- have an interest. Even China has tried to make its influence felt there for strategic reasons as kind of a, uh, a beachhead in, in Europe, if you will. And, you know, for, for the EU, I th- think it's absolutely essential that they, uh, you know, do not lose the Balkans, as as it were, to either China or Russia. The interesting thing here is that there does seem to be a split in terms of the strategy that the U.S. is pursuing now in this peace process and the strategy that the European Union has been pursuing. And there there is a bit of uh, conflict uh, ar- around that. And I think the reason is, is that uh, for the for the Trump administration, um, you know, this is also something that might not be at the top of their list of priorities, but it is an issue that Rick Grinnell, the former ambassador to Germany and uh, I think the now former um, acting director of national intelligence, uh, it is a cause that he has, has, has championed for what, whatever reason, and he has the president's ear. So I think you have to take what, what he's doing here seriously. He's called this meeting. Uh, I think that the chances, by, by all accounts, of having some big breakthrough here might be pretty limited. But this could be something that, if it's not done right, will lead to a bigger mess and Europe could find itself dealing with a much more difficult situation than it has already. Yeah, I would just say as someone who formerly uh, lived in Kosovo and also lived in uh, Belgrade, just for uh, anybody looking out for bias for one side or the other, my impression also watching it from Brussels is in particular how the EU appears to have dropped the ball here. Uh, For years, they were responsible for overseeing a dialogue between Belgrade and Pristina, which kind of ground to a halt for various reasons. And then uh, President Trump uh, appointed Grinnell the EU did not respond with an envoy of its own. Joseph Borrell, when he was going through his confirmation hearing in the European Parliament, it said that you know this was a priority, that his first visit would be to Pristina in his capacity as the High Representative for Foreign Affairs. That didn't happen. He did visit, uh, but it was not his first visit. And there were reasons again for that. Uh, the domestic politics in Kosovo were tricky at that time. But he did not appoint a special envoy until about six months after the US did. So in other words, the EU allowed the US to take the initiative here 
In some cases, that would not have necessarily been a bad thing for the EU because often the US and EU have worked quite well together and sometimes uh, the clout that the US provides has been very useful for the EU too in kind of advancing its interests in the region. But in this particular case, there appears to be no coordination. There's a real split. The uh, envoy appointed by the EU, uh, Miroslav Lachak, the former Slovak foreign minister, has not got a warm reception from, in particular, Kosovo's president, Hashim Thaci, who has criticised him. You also have this issue that both Borrell and Lychak come from countries that don't even recognise uh, Kosovo uh, as a country. So, uh, you know, they would argue that doesn't matter, but it does matter to people in Kosovo. And so, all in all, this is just looking like a bit of a mess. And we saw uh, both Macron and Merkel try and get involved in Kosovo not so long ago. You know, there was a, a meeting that you reported on, Matt, at, in the chancellery. And then, of course, Reem, there was meant to be one of the Elysee, right? And that was, I don't know, that was like a year ago or something. And that never happened. Um, and I guess we haven't even touched on one of the most contentious issues about all this, which is their is a fear that a deal could be done that would involve border change and that that could then have repercussions across the region. But again, the European Union has not managed to have a united position as to whether it opposes that or not. Yeah, I, I, I would just say one one more thing on this in terms of the interest of the US. I mean, I do think that it is largely for, you know, almost PR reasons, because as the US moves into the election season, Trump is really looking for things that he can point to in terms of foreign policy successes. And he doesn't have many so far. His initiative in North Korea, for example, you know, literally blew up uh, this week. And, um, you know, there, there are not a lot of sort of great successes that he can point to. So I think this is something, you know, that, that he would like to get done. And Grinnell is very eager to, even though most Americans are not familiar with the region in any sort of detailed way, I would say. So you have to wonder how serious the um, American initiative is here in the long term. Yeah. OK, we'll leave it there. We can come back to this again. Maybe we'll do a special Balkan podcast sometime for the for the hardcore listeners. Um, but uh, for now, uh, Reem and Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's go straight to our interview with Peter Mandelson, one of the architects of New Labour, former European Commissioner, now a member of the House of Lords and chairman of a strategic advisory firm called Global Council, which he co-founded. He spoke to us via Zoom earlier this week. What do you think about the overall kind of um, direction in terms of economic policy that the EU is pursuing, particularly since the UK left or since the UK was on its way out? You know, we've seen France and Germany uh, talk about, you know, the idea of European champions. You know, I think some people would say that this is a European Union that is becoming less liberal economically. Do you agree with that? And do you, you know, how do you feel about the overall direction that it seems to be heading in? I think there's a risk of that and a danger of that happening in response to this crisis, but also in response to the continued rise of China and how we in Europe come to terms uh, with China's rise. I think there is a danger that people might draw the wrong lessons or reach the wrong conclusions about this, that you know, globalization has gone too far. Uh, we've got to be more self-sufficient. Uh, we've got to invest more in our own. We've got to cut ourselves off uh, from those global supply chains that have, have grown uh, exponentially during the last two to three uh, decades. I think these would be the wrong conclusions to reach, that we should shut out foreign investment, particularly Chinese investment. And I think there's a case for us being, uh, as some would say, less naive, I would say more strategic in how we secure 
uh, Europe's long-term industrial interests. I think that uh, how we participate uh, in the technology race from, uh, you know, from the strength uh, uh, and investment that we undertake in our science base, in research and development, how we convert that into new business and commercial ends, uh, we are, I'm afraid, uh, falling behind in that race, behind the United States and China. And so how we uh, do differently, pick up speed uh, and secure uh, our, our place technologically and industrially in the long term is something which really interests me. Uh, but I'm afraid I don't think that the answer to this uh, you know, lies in building walls, protectionist walls around the European economy. I don't think it lies in excluding foreign investment. I think we have to maintain, uh, broadly speaking, uh, our framework of competition policy as it is, broadly. That's not to say that it should never be uh, adjusted. I mean, I think that, uh, frankly, the way in which uh, Phil Hogan, uh, the Trade Commissioner, has talked about the need for strategic open autonomy is, broadly speaking, the right way to go. Thinking strategically, thinking of the long term, maintaining that the, uh, ensuring that the European economy remains uh, uh, open uh, to the rest of uh, the world, but also uh, securing our autonomy of production and supply in key areas and sectors where it's important for us is also the right uh, path to take. So I think that how he's described it strikes the right tone and balance between different policy objectives. And I hope that's the way the European Union goes. You know, we have the Trump administration with a pretty um, hardline view of China. Is it possible for the EU to have a kind of middle way to have a, a separate China policy? Or are we heading for a G2 world where Europe has to pick a side? Well, obviously, the pandemic and the, the Wuhan virus, as Trump calls it, you know, is providing you know, the hawks in the United States, and notably those in and around President Trump himself, with a very good opportunity to, you know, to export that to Europe and to polarise opinion in Europe around China. You know, my view is that the relationship between Europe and China is always going to be based on a combination of, of competition and cooperation. Both are valid, both are necessary. You know, China is not our friend, you know, let alone our ally, but nor should it be turned into an enemy. Uh, I, I don't feel I'm naive about China as a former trade commissioner. I, it's not possible to be naive about China. And indeed, in, in 2007, I think it was, I described China's exponential growth in trade like a juggernaut out of control in the international trade system look we need to we need to counter that you know we can't just sort of sit back and you know wait for that juggernaut to sort of roll out you know like a giant combine harvester across the industrial hinterland of our continent i'm uh, that's not acceptable we need so how do you stop it well, we need to maintain a balance of power and autonomy between the West and China. But my feeling very strongly about this is that the way to do this is not to imagine that we can do down China or put China into reverse or put some sort of economic iron curtain around China. 
what we've got to do first and foremost is to look to our own devices, you know, not just in Europe, but in the West as a whole. We've got to repair and build up the West's own cohesion, its influence in the world, the way in which it pursues its own economic interests, and by the way, the way in which the West is able to shape a more coherent strategy vis-a-vis uh, China than we have uh, at the moment. You know, what, what the West has done is it has lost confidence in itself and stepped back from international influence. We've created a void that China is stepping into. You know, we have to look to, you know, our own responsibilities here. And if we don't want China to sort of fill the world, uh, then we as Europeans have got to be much more effective uh, at, uh, at protecting our own interests and projecting our own values. That's why I agree with those who say that, you know, we're entering a sort of a, a geopolitical uh, era or phase uh, for Europe's construction. I think that's right. Um, if we want to balance China, uh, uh, then we need to engage in more joined up action with the United States, but also in other respects where we want to balance the United States uh, as well as China. You know, we've got to have a much greater sense of Europe's interests, how Europe views the world, and how, as I say, Europe is going to uh, pursue its own interests within that world. Okay, you mentioned um, Phil Hogan a few moments ago. Uh, as you know, he's a candidate to be the next uh, Director General of the World Trade Organization. Uh, are you also interested in the post? Yes, I am. Uh, and uh, let, let, let me explain why. I, I think that the WTO it has reached a fork in the road. I think it's on its knees. The WTO has got to be picked up and put back on its feet and this is a job for a practice politician, not a diplomat uh, or a technician. Um, in my view, the WTO needs to be saved from, well, from collapsing under the weight of its own cross-cutting interests and its own contradictions. Now, I think this is possible to do. I think it's also essential uh, if we want a rules-based uh, way of running the world and managing competing interests uh, in it. But this consensual member-driven organization in Geneva needs a fresh vision. It needs a sense of direction. Uh, I think there are a few people who could provide that. Uh, I would like to think that I am one of them, but I've not yet been nominated by my own British government. Uh, I, I believe that they are considering this. I might say that I haven't heard recently from them. I hope that that means they're still considering it. But there are other good candidates uh, around uh, some have entered the race uh, already. Uh, some are considering doing so. They're all qualified people. But I'm absolutely sure that the WTO needs a heavyweight, a political heavyweight, uh, with ministerial experience, somebody who knows the trade scene and knows what's going to, got to be done uh, if the WTO is going to be put back into effective working order. Have you been sounded out by the British government as a potential candidate? I have had discussions, uh, yes, uh, with ministers, but um, as you would expect, it, it's not sort of plain or straightforward for uh, a government of this political uh, colour uh, 
to nominate somebody who's both not of their political tribe, but also not of their not of their global persuasion. I'm a former European Trade Commissioner. I know the European scene. I care about the European Union. And and for some in the British government, I think that may be a a, a problem. Others, on the other hand, you know, see me as qualified uh, and would regard it as quite a step up for what for their ambitions to create a global ambition, a global Britain, if they are able to fill a job like this with a British citizen. And uh, you, you talked a bit about what you think is required, but do you have a, a kind of uh, a sort of rough manifesto in your head or a kind of, you know, here's what would be number one, two or three on my list if I if I took over in Geneva? Well, my, my basic view is that in the tension between, you know, between China uh, and others within the international trading system, including but not only the West, and that's at the heart of, of what people feel has sort of gone wrong in the WTO, is not that the rules are being flouted by China, as, as some maintain, but that, that the rules themselves are inadequate, deficient, and out of date. I mean, they're serving an international trading system that belongs to a previous era. And it's the WTO's rule book that needs modernizing and updating to cater for the differences between market-based and state-backed economies, as well as for the growth in services and digital trade and a, and a host of other 21st century trade developments. So it's basically the WTO does need reform. Its rule book needs up, updating. It needs to be fit for purpose. In the few minutes we have left, I um, wanted to talk a bit about um, UK-EU relations. What do you make of the way talks are going on the future relationship right now? Um, I believe there's a route through. I think the negotiators, though, uh, have to be given more flexibility in order to find that route. But how the negotiations will end up, I, still, I think, is still uh, very uncertain. It could go either way, uh, a deal or, or no deal. Um, one thing I'm very clear about is that a no deal finish to this would be a very bad, bad outcome for both sides. And incidentally, very hard for them to sell politically. I think the public would be appalled, both in Britain uh, and across the EU. They'll think that on top of all the COVID misery, and the continuing loss of jobs uh, that they've had to uh, experience, that government leaders have a paramount duty to compromise and agree rather than create you know, further disruption and the further threat to livelihoods that would result from no deal. I think every politician responsible for such a failure would take a bit, would take a big hit you know, uh, uh, from the chaos uh, that follows. The problem is that both sides have been more than a little careless in releasing their own demons into the negotiation. The UK government's visceral dislike of anything European that it interprets as affecting UK sovereignty, and the EU's deep fear of creating a competitive monster on its borders uh, with access to Europe's market. I mean, that's, of course, why the EU is insisting on linking policy and regulatory equivalents, the level playing field issues, to market access in a way that's frankly not normal in a free trade 
agreement. Um, but the political reality is that these things are now firmly linked and without compromise on these issues, there will be neither a permanent nor an interim agreement. So on the, on the level playing field, it's essential for an agreement. Uh, and I think there's also wriggle room available to reach that agreement. You know, for example, you know, it's right for Britain to accept the status quo, in my view, in standards and state aid rules as it has, by the way, indicated that in the past it would do, without agreeing to follow every future change uh, the uh, EU makes. But then, of course, we're seeing in the case of state aid rules and government subsidies, these are now being thrown around like confetti. Uh, so these rules are already becoming more fluid uh, than they were. And, of course, if the UK subsidises um, excessively particular firms or industries in the future... The EU always has recourse uh, to the imposition of, uh, of tariffs if it so wishes, uh, and that will become a matter for the governance of whatever uh, agreement is made. So there is a way through uh, uh, all this, uh, and I hope they find it, because the alternative is very bad for everyone. That was Peter Mandelson making it official that he'd like to be the next chief of the WTO. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please take a moment to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review. You can also drop us a line anytime. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Next week, we'll hear from the EU's Transport Commissioner, Adina Valian. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.